I'm Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to Farm Equipment's Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmaps Podcast with Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC and Alan Hoskins, President of American Farm Mortgage in Lexington, Kentucky. In this episode, Alan talks about the current ag market and shares some reflections on the late 70s and how that compares to the inflationary period we're currently in. If this is your first time listening, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio. By subscribing, you're alerted when each new episode is released. Okay, let's get things going. Here's Casey and Alan talking about the ag market, inflation, and how globalization has changed the market. Alan, it's always great to come on and talk about what's going on from a multitude of perspectives. Alan is a banker, a farmer, and true glut for punishment and deals in a little bit of the used iron marketplace. So Alan, how you been, man? Doing well, Casey. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. I love the conversation, man. So every time we get to do this, I look forward to it, man. So there is a little different economy than what we talked last time. Last time we talked, we were for sure, weren't for sure what was going to happen because we were at about $3 corn then and uh, $7 beans and and it didn't there wasn't a whole lot on the horizon that was going to point that we were going to move to anything uh, better than what we'd seen there. Had some pretty good movement through there and through the first year and here we sit today with the commodity prices that we're at. So um, I guess probably the easy thing to do here first would be, I guess, Alan, why don't you just give a, a quick kind of rundown of what the situations are like out in uh, your neck of the woods and uh, kind of what you see happening out there and, and what's the feel for the crops and those kind of things. Sure. You know, Casey, we we had uh, some very good spring weather early on. We saw both corn and beans going in the ground a little earlier than normal. And that worked well until we had an extended period of uh, colder weather, colder than normal, normal, pardon me, and had a little bit of wetter weather earlier as well. Kind of slowed the production a little bit. We saw, I think, beginning in mid to late May, we saw those growing degree units start to arrive on a little more consistent basis. And I would say that where we are now, we're probably somewhere an average crop. I could take you to some areas that they've gotten a little more rain than others here in the past two to three weeks that they look fantastic. But I would say as a whole, based upon what I've seen personally, plus in talking to multiple producers, I'd say we're somewhere about an average crop. Now, obviously, we don't know how the year is going to finish out, but we saw corn probably tossing a week or so earlier than normal in this area. We saw, as I said earlier, a lot of beans going in early. We're beginning to see more and more beans planted before corn. The size of beans as you drive through the area right now isn't exactly where you would anticipate they would be simply because of what we saw with that colder weather. And there were a number of fields that either had to be spotted in or replanted. I finished up planting personally May the 22nd. And while I was finishing the field for the first time, I had a couple of neighbors that were replanting. One was replanting corn, spotting it in. One was replanting a, a complete field of beans. So we, we've seen probably a little more replant, I would think, than normal this year as a whole. But we're 
I've not talked to anyone that's disappointed with her crop at this point, but we sure could use a little rain, I would say, here in the next uh, seven to 10 days. And I think your seven to 10 days worth of rain thing is, is about the same about across the country. What I've talked to, there's no one saying they sure should stop raining. I guess there are probably some areas where it's flooded. They don't want any more rain, but for the majority of the countryside, it's they could use some rain, that's for sure. So, Alan, I've been... <clears throat> been watching this close and paying close attention to that. And you and I kind of talked about this a little bit before we got started here, but you start taking a look at the inflationary period that we're in right now. And you start mm-hmm. looking at interest rates and the Fed is saying, we're not going to raise rates in the first sentence. And the next sentence are like, but there's a possibility that we could raise rates in the next mm-hmm. sentence. You know, So there's some very, very, very unclear guidance as to what their ultimate plan is, which that's pretty typical for the Fed. Mm-hmm. What I'm thinking, what I'm more concerned about more than anything, and I'm not anticipating to see like, you know, 20% interest rates and 15% interest rates, those kind of things. But if you look at a very, the inflationary period coming out of the late 70s and then how that moved and, and graduated into the 80s. Now, I was, I was born in 1977, so I, I didn't live through any of that. But um, I do remember my dad had been in the oil field business, and I do remember the mid 80s and how tough that was. And what that looked like. So I guess, Alan, as you take a look at this, you know, going back, if, uh, you know, hindsight's 2020 historical perspective of what's going on here, do you see any at all from a, from your banking perspective, do you see anything here at all that, that always kind of alarms you to like, you know, I've seen this story before? There, there was a statement made a few years ago, Casey, that said history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. I think <laughs> that's kind of... <laughs> perhaps a potential we have for right now. Obviously, you can go back and look at what happened in the late 70s and into the early 1980s, and you look at that point where Prime hit 21.5%. Certainly no one wants to go back to that perspective that has any debt whatsoever. Depositors, however, would certainly love the opportunity to go back to bank CDs being 15%. but I would say, Casey, that trying to necessarily match up what happened at that time with what happened today as a predictor, I'm not sure how valid that's going to be. That being said, I think you can go back and look at the cause of some of the actions that occurred at that time. And you look at what's happening today, and there are a few similarities that I think bear watching. One of the things, certainly, that is different, if you look at China, for example, and I believe I have this number correct, Casey, I believe in 1990, China was about 2% of the world economy, and a couple of years ago, it was about 14%. Certainly, that is vastly different than what we saw in the early period globalization today. Uh, We're so much more interconnected today than we were. Uh, You look at the effect of biofuel today on the corn market, and you look at some of the recent court cases, how biofuel could be affected. It it would seem that, and this is not going to be a surprise to anyone in agriculture, I think one of the major differences that we see today is the volatility effect from a time standpoint of how quickly things can be affected. Now, that being said, I can go back to the 
early 1980s and point to a period where the prime rate changed about 6% within six months, both higher and lower. So I'm not saying that that didn't occur back then, but what I am saying today, I think the ability that people have to access information is so much greater today that it increases the speed of the volatility, if you will. Inflation, obviously, is something that any of us today, that we we go to the grocery store or we go to an auction to buy a piece of equipment or we go to put uh, diesel in the truck, gasoline in the car, we're certainly experiencing inflation. It's also interesting when, when you look at the unemployment issues that presently exist and look at the cases you and I were talking earlier, you know, whether you're coming to the dealership there to look for a piece of equipment or say you wanted to buy a new side-by-side or four-wheeler, the availability of inventory is just almost non-existent. Yeah. And for as you and I were talking earlier, I spoke with a dealer yesterday that on that sells four-wheelers, side-by-sides, motorcycles. They said they had four dirt bikes on their showroom floor and one four-wheeler. He said their next inventory would arrive in October, but it was already sold. So it's kind of, I think, an interesting anomaly when you look at what unemployment has done, but yet you look at what sales are doing. That's a little bit of a different dynamic, I think, certainly, than we saw in the 70s. With regard to interest rates specifically, you know, I think one of the things that if you look at a doubling of interest rates in the early 1980s. That was going from 10% to 20% in order to double your interest cost. If you look today, there's a lot of guys that have interest rates at three, three and a quarter, three and a half, three, seven, five. Doubling the interest rates today would barely take it to where a 30-year normal interest rate shows to be. I think that's something that producers need to maybe factor in a little bit is What happens if they look at their balance sheet and they look at the debt that they have out there that is not rate locked? What if they shock those interest rates by 2% or 3%? How much of their gross production value will an increase of 2% eat into or 3%? And I think it's a good opportunity for them to certainly they can look at it themselves or sit down with their lender and say, show me what happens if we see a 2% or 3% increase in rates. What happens to my payments? Not just the interest cost itself, but from the cash flow perspective. How much of my margin that I have projected this year would be eaten up if we saw that 2% or 3% increase if those payments had to be reamortized. So interest is kind of like a commodity in one respect, Casey. It's never good to try to bet on where it's going to go. It's a better business methodology to manage the margin of interest as opposed to trying to predict the direction of interest. That way, if you're managing the margin, no different than with your corn, soybean, wheat, cattle sales, you're managing a margin, you're putting protective measures in place to help you on the downside, but you're also wanting to make sure you have upside potential on that. 
it's the inverse on interest. You're wanting to protect yourself from that upside increase. So I would say that's just something producers need to probably be mindful of at least. All right. So that you laid that out nice. I mean, the way that you, you kind of showed that out and, and how, how those differences were there. I had a conversation with a uh, my son mows grass and conversation with a case salesman, and he's 90 years old, I think. He's not 90. He's almost 90. And uh, I asked a question to him, you know, have you ever seen a time like this where the lack of new it was there and there wasn't a bunch of used equipment to sell? I mean, you really don't have anything out there to sell, uh, new or used-wise. And he's like, I've never seen this. I've been doing this since 1945 or 47, and, and I haven't haven't seen this uh, ever in my life. So, and the comment I've made a couple of times is, you know, if we had a hundred tractors and sell a hundred tractors and, and, and still have another hundred people that want to buy a hundred more tractors. So right now we're, we're busy in the fact that we're looking for, we're, we're talking to customers and we're getting things figured out, but we just don't have the, the inventory to, <clears throat> to really go out and sell. I mean, we've, everything we have coming in is, is going to be either Mark sold a new, or we got the use sold behind that, you know, whatever that looks like, how those things work. My theory that I have right now is that as you kind of take a look at um, over the next three years, I think there's a great opportunity for guys to rebuild some equity that they lost in their equipment farms and everywhere else along the way. Um, then that last downturn, but I, I 2025 is kind of where my, my number sticks in my head that we're going to start seeing some, some big changes in the marketplace. I think, Supply and demand will catch up with each other and we'll have a, a more of a normal looking thing. So obviously prices will start to fall then. What goes on with commodity prices in that time frame is, you know, your guess is as good as mine. I wouldn't guess that we'd see a dollar swing in, you know, once a week commodity mm-hmm. prices, but at least you are we sure seeing that here of late. But I guess as you take a look out there and start taking a look around. What's your feel for this? Do you do you feel like, you know, is it two or three years we're gonna see a pretty good run and then we'll see you know, like that typical five to seven year cycle, but that later two years of that, that five year cycle where we start seeing things start to change and that slack in the rope starts to kind of get, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger, I guess. What's your thoughts on that? Casey, I, I can't find anything to dispute in what you just said. I, I think certainly with where prices are today, I wouldn't want to put together a seven-year plan based upon today's prices. That that would be a little concerning to me. We obviously don't know where prices are headed, but as you said earlier, we were pleasantly surprised in what we saw happen beginning last fall. And I would say that that's a very stark reminder of how quickly prices can move and if prices can move up in that time frame, there's nothing that says that they can't reverse trend within a similar time frame as well. We obviously don't know where some of our trading partners on a world stage are going to be in buying the commodities we have. We know that South America's production obviously is a huge player in the market as well today, and there's more land being developed there as well. So I think, Casey, you're right. I would, and I'm not certainly in a position to say that things are going to stay status quo for the next three years, because I I wouldn't say that by any stretch of the imagination. But I think something you said earlier about that five to seven year cycle, I 
certainly wouldn't anticipate or wouldn't want to give anyone the mindset that we're going to experience some pretty good times here for the next five years, because I just don't know that to be true. And I think given the volatility we see, we're apt to see changes sooner rather than later. I think something you said earlier relative to the equity that has changed. If you look at a farmer's balance sheet today and, and you look strictly at their equipment line, and let's talk about that for a moment. Casey, I went back and looked at some numbers here about a year and a half ago. And at that time, the machinery and equipment on the farmer's balance sheet and what I was looking at was the second largest asset that existed behind real estate. With some farmers, depending upon their structure, it's the number one asset. If you do a market value balance sheet based upon what we're seeing on machinery and equipment today, we've seen some pretty good equity appreciation in a lot of operations solely because of what has occurred within the equipment market. One of the statements that I made over year, over the years, though, is you can't take equity to the grocery store to buy a gallon of milk. It's got to be cash. And I think it's always a good policy to try to have the market value be as accurate as possible on the balance sheet. But it's also worth a reminder that should we go back to what we saw in 2013 or 14, when we saw equipment values kind of fall off the table, the same thing would need to be looked at if we see an adjustment in equipment values in the negative direction. So I think that's something producers need to factor into their discussions with their lenders because, and I'm going to make a generalized statement. There are ag lenders out there that I think do understand equipment values, but I think there's a significant percentage out there that maybe don't keep up with it on a daily basis either. So I think producers helping educate their lenders in what's going on helps them to have a more accurate financial statement. And I think certainly that can benefit them from an interest rate perspective because interest rates, Casey, are a product of risk. The greater the risk, typically, the higher the interest rate. The lower the risk, the less lesser interest rate. So I think that may be a valid point that producers can use in discussions with their bankers about where they are from a risk perspective and how that may translate into potentially a lower interest rate for them. Or if we see interest rates rise, maybe why an interest rate doesn't tip, doesn't rise, even though we're in a period of interest rate rises. So I kind of got off on a little bit of a rabbit trail there, but I, I think that's something worth mentioning because it, it does need to be a partnership between the producer and lender. Back to your point, Casey, I, I do agree with you. I think that three-year window, absent something in the marketplace, you know, certainly no one anticipated COVID and couldn't predict what we have seen. I think that is a good starting point for people to look at their plans. And we've talked before on here, Casey, about making sure that people have a perspective of having a five to 10 year plan. I think in today's world, maybe having that plan of three to five years 
mm-hmm. isn't a bad thought also because we know that things can and do change pretty rapidly. So that that's kind of a suggestion that I would give to folks, particularly on the equipment side, because if a combine goes down today and they need to replace the combine, it's going to be a lot more challenging than what they've historically seen. And I think having a plan in place, what do we do if, you know, if we're running a combine that's got 1,500 hours on it and we have a major issue arise this fall, what is it we think we would do? What kind of funds do we anticipate needing to spend? And just kind of be prepared for that occurring. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think <clears throat> looking at your uh, three to five year, especially when you start looking at what's going on in the uh, overall equipment marketplace right now. The, the thing I don't want, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from doing anything, but the, the point that you have to maintain in the back of your mind is that, yes, this is an excellent time to go out and sell your equipment. Best time I think I've ever seen to go out and sell a piece of equipment right now. This year, next year, both will be just epic time to sell used equipment. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of that, though, you have to go back and buy whatever you're going to replace that with, unless you're buying something new, right? Now, mm-hmm. if you're buying something new, that's a whole different that's a whole different animal because that that pricing is controlled by the manufacturer and mm-hmm. how all those things play together and yada yada yada. It's not mm-hmm. as of fluid of a market as you see what you in in the on the used equipment side of it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Use equipment side of the business is it's truly a commodity. It's just like corn or anything else. It's mm-hmm. whatever the market's going to bear that day and mm-hmm. is what it is, right? <clears throat> and if you're going to back to buy and use, you're going to buy something at the top of the marketplace. If you're going to buy something new, there, there's an opportunity, I think, to maybe hedge your bet a little bit on, mm-hmm. on some of this. Like we talked about the slack and the rope thing. I mean, the new side of it is going to have a lot less fluctuations. Mm-hmm. Then if you bring that guy like you, just your example, the 1,500-hour combine, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows where that's going to be at. My, my prediction right now, as I sit here and I look at the combine marketplace, it's starting to heat up. And I think by December of this year, the combine market is going to be hotter than anything else we have out there because of the fact that it's going to be what's available in a lot of, a lot of uh, especially when it comes for taxes and those kind of things. I mean, it's going to be a hot marketplace. And you could see these machines that we were talking about earlier in, in many of these podcasts about, you know, you see an $80,000 combine might be bringing closer to 90, maybe even a hundred thousand dollars at an auction. Mm-hmm. And some of these 50,000, you know, jumping up to that 67, that $70,000 range. Mm-hmm. Now that's a short lived burst. Great time to take advantage of that. There again, you really got to start looking at what you're going to buy. What does that plan look like? I mean, the funds and those kind of things you're talking about, don't you take my, seven-year-old combine, my five-year-old combine, my three-year-old combine, and move up to that, you know, maybe from from seven-year-old combine to a three-year-old combine, and from a three-year-old combine to that one-year-old trader or a new one or something like that, and how that all plays in there. We'll get back to Casey and Alan in a moment, but first I wanted to pause to invite you to join us for the next Dealership Mind Summit. To view this year's program and to register, visit www.dealershipmindsummit.com. Now back to Casey and Alan as they discuss how producers need to help educate their lenders about equipment values and how they may change because it's not something lenders are necessarily watching on a daily basis. Conversations you're having with your guys right now, because I know you got to have people coming and talking to you about, you know, I'm looking at the end of the year and mm-hmm. I'm looking like I'm going to have a fairly decent crop. Prices are, you know, 
whatever they are, might be. What kind of conversations are you having with your folks and, and what kind of advice are you given in that kind of realm right there about what's the right thing for me to do and, and why is it the right thing for me to do? Well, there's two things that come to mind immediately. And number one, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say by you can have mechanical failure with a brand new combine. So I, I want to want to say that. But also, one of the things, Casey, that, that I'm thinking that needs to be a consideration that historically has not been as much of an issue. We know that there are challenges in the supply chain for new equipment. And by the way, I, I don't like the term supply chain. I'll be honest with you. It's just the fact that it's hard to get new equipment, okay? So yep. Supply chain sounds a little too intelligent for me. We, we know that it's a challenge getting new equipment today. We know it's a challenge finding used equipment. But one of the things I, I don't hear spoken of as much, but I know those challenges are out there. Getting parts for used equipment yep. is not yep. as simple as necessarily making a phone call and it being there tomorrow. So one of the things that I'm really encouraging guys that, again, if the combine's got 700 hours or 1,500 hours, whichever, look realistically at what you think the mechanical condition of that combine is, because not all 700-hour combines are the same. Not all 1,500-hour combines are the same. Look realistically at what your mechanical condition is of your combine. Look realistically at what do you do if you have a challenge this fall that's major, does it make sense if you're in a position from a working capital perspective, from an equity perspective, does it make sense to go ahead and consider, even though prices are a little higher right now than maybe they'd like, would you rather take the risk to some degree off the table by upgrading that machine right now, as opposed to maybe getting into harvest having an issue, not being able to get parts for a little bit longer than normal. And, you know, when, Casey, we've talked about this before, when you look at the volume that combines can handle today, a two-day downtime in today's world can be a significant portion of a crop, just simply wow. because of the speed at which the crop comes out anymore. Yeah. So one of the things I'm really encouraging guys to do, if they're not running a brand-new combine, look realistically at this condition and factor in are you going to be okay if your combine's down for three or four days this fall because you can't get a part in the normal time frame? And look at what that's going to cost you. And again, going back to the capital replacement plan that I've talked about before, mm -hmm. are you better off going ahead and maybe if you can find something that fits your needs right now, but it is a challenge without a doubt, but are you better off maybe going ahead and making that trade before we get into fall? Right. No, the latter part of your question. And I think this is potentially the more complicated part this year than what we've ever seen. Historically speaking, in Casey, you could speak to this better than I do. I don't know what the percentage of an organization's equipment sales are that occur in the last 20 days of the calendar year. But my guess is in periods like this of good commodity prices, it's pretty darn yeah. <clears throat> this fall what happens if you go to the accountant and you don't go until december 10th and you look at that tax bill and you look at those section 179 that may be available but you can't find the right machine 
obviously you have prepays, but there are limitations on the deductibility of the amount of prepays as I understand it. And, and I'm not an accountant. So I would say, make sure that you understand what those are. But how can you manage that tax liability if you can't find the equipment that you want to trade? The other thing, obviously, and you touched on it earlier, Casey, we've seen some people that have made some outright sales this year in replacing equipment that maybe historically they would have traded in with the tax law changes from a couple of years ago, making sure what capital gains might be present because of the sale of that piece of equipment outright or on a trade-in, either one, just making sure what effect that may have on taxable income this year is also something else that I think people need to be mindful of. But I think talking to the accountant today about what are our options this fall if we can't find equipment to trade for for 179 what are the other options we're going to have to minimize tax liability that won't kill our cash flow? Yeah. Because, you know, I've seen purchases made solely for the purpose of saving taxes. I don't think as a general rule, I've seen that be a successful strategy when it didn't fit into a long-term plan for the operation. I know no one likes to pay taxes, but there are times where honestly paying a few dollars in taxes are a better option than creating a 179 deduction just for the sole purpose of minimizing taxes. Yep. No, I would agree with that. I'm going to go back to your tax liability um, comment there about buying equipment at the end of the year. And that's something I've been given a lot of thought about is if you're in a situation right now where you are thinking that you're going to have done that you pencil it out and you've assumed some things and you've done those kind of things, mm-hmm. I would highly recommend that you start sitting down with your accountants right now and start really digging into that some, to some assumptions based on, mm-hmm commodity prices are X and I've got this kind of bushels and so on and so forth. Here's my, you know, payment structures and those are things and start getting an idea what that looks like now, because if you start wait, if you wait till November, December to show up and start looking at, and I really think this year is going to be a lot like last year where corn harvest starts early, ends early. And there's like that 30 or 45 day lull between typically between the end of, uh, end of, end of fall harvest going into the end of the year. Uh, so many years, except for last year, it's been, you know, harvest ended, you know, December 20th. And now we got, you know, 10 days to go make a decision type of thing. I would encourage everybody listening to this to sit down with your accountants and start looking at where you're at. Because if you're looking at needing to buy a machine or upgrade a machine or get some repairs done or something like that to start looking at offset some of these tax taxable situations mm-hmm. you have, I start doing that right now. And because if it's available, you need to jump on it. Because it won't, I don't know what's going to be there at the end of the year. And Casey, I I agree with you. And I think something that I would append to that as well, once that conversation occurs with the accountant and there's a belief that there is going to be a need for something, I think immediately having that conversation with someone like you from the equipment side, whoever they're dealing with on their equipment, don't wait until the end of November to say, hey, I think I may be interested in trading. I think if they kind of believe based upon their conversation with the accountant, that's going to be a reasonable expenditure that they're going to need to make, have that conversation with the equipment person now, because just simply due to the constraint we're seeing in the volume of good use equipment, 
I would think them making you aware and their equipment salesman aware of what their potential needs are would put them a little earlier in the line that it helps you when you're looking at trading with someone to know where there may be a sale for that used piece of equipment. So I think it potentially puts them in a position to be aware of something a little earlier in the process than normal maybe, and also helps you be fair to both the person buying the newer piece of equipment and the piece of equipment that's coming in on trade. So I, I don't believe that's typically done. Most producers I know don't sit down with their equipment guy at the end of July or 1st of August. But honestly, I think it'd be a good thing to do this year. Yeah, I think this is an exceptional year to, to take a look at that just because of if this was any other typical year where we had plenty of new stuff coming in, you know, the, the 22s were showing up in the fall and you know, we got this nice little lot of, of dealer, you know, dealer purchase stuff that we're going to put in stock and those kind of things. And then we've got some, you know, the use coming in behind that. Yeah. Since urgency is not there, but I think this year is a different animal altogether where making sure that you've got your, your ducks in the proverbial row is going to get you ahead of the game quite a bit. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. Okay. So now you've, you've had your farmer hat on, you've had your banker hat on. Now let's put on your equipment guy hat a little bit here and just ask you a few questions there. So auctions are something that I, I firmly believe in. I mean, I think the auction market is, is the, the best indicator as to what's going on in the marketplace. Retail markets um, react to what happens in the, um, in the auction market. Eventually the auction market never reacts to what's going on in the retail market, right? It's, it's the kind of the trendsetter. So mm-hmm. Right now, you go to watch any auction, and the, the values of used equipment through the roof. Everyone's buying stuff. I mean, I've watched auctions sell for more than what I had if you didn't even have it advertised for. So it, it tells you where the where the marketplace is at. So watching those trend lines develop, you can tell where that there's a huge demand for used equipment in the marketplace, especially good quality used equipment. When on the flip side of that, though, and the reason I watch auctions because I'm trying to predict when when I need to pull the plug on something and start scrambling down and. and and, and redirecting assets in the different areas and stuff like that. When you're watching auction marketplaces and as you watch these upticks and these downticks and these flows in the market, those kind of things, what trend lines are you watching to tell you to say, hey, you know what? I see a downturn coming and I need to start, you know, fortifying a few little areas here and there. What, what are those points that you're paying attention to and why? Well, first of all, the, the thing that I try to do is throw out what I think are aberrations that occur in that market because and certainly with what we've seen explode in my opinion over the past 18 months because of covid with the online auction becoming so much more prevalent even than what we saw at the beginning of 2020 there's still aberrations in the marketplace and so one of the things casey that i look at when i see something that really catches my eye because Obviously, we know used values are trending higher just simply because new values trend higher. And that is logical that that's going to occur. But I I try to make sure that I don't look at something that truly is an aberration as a reasonable sale. And so what, what I try to look at is look at similar hours, similar condition, similar options on three or four of the same type item over a couple of month period. 
that's that's what I'm really looking at, Casey, to try to figure out where the market is moving. And right now it's pretty easy right. to be able to tell where the market's moving. But I think when you when we do see the adjustment come and it will, it always does. That's what I'm going to be looking at more is the component. The other thing that I think is it used to be that auctions were a little more regional. That's not true anymore. Auctions yeah. are truly national today. Right. But it's also still true that demand is regional. You know, it depends. A 12 or 30 inch corn planter is not going to sell, obviously, as well in some areas of the country as it is in others. So that's the other thing I look at. When I see sales prices on an auction, I'm looking at where did that auction occur? And I also try to take that into consideration because, you know, if you go back, what was it, a couple of years ago when Ohio really got hammered from a weather perspective and Eastern Ohio just had a train wreck from a crop perspective. And again, that was prior to what I, what I would call the proliferation of the online auction. You could go back during that period of time and you could see some down sales in that area. Yeah. So that's the other thing, Casey, that I try to take into consideration a little bit. The other thing is also what does it look like the demand for that type equipment might be on an ongoing basis? You know, obviously operations are continue to get bigger and bigger. You know, when you know, good grief when you know, I was 18 years old in uh, 1982. I go back and I look at the 4440 in 1982. That was such a versatile tractor. I mean, you could plant with it, you could you tillage with it. And about any size farm in that era needed that size tractor. Today, that's an auger tractor for the most part. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Or, or somebody sure. you know, somebody like me that I'd like to have an 82 that I can restore and you mm-hmm. don't keep as a collector tractor. So I think that's the other thing you see that I take into consideration as well in that if I'm buying a piece of equipment to resell, you know, first of all, I don't want to buy anything that I won't keep and use for a little bit because I want to know what it looks like. But number two, what do I think the demand for that is going to be, you know, maybe even 12 months down the road, because obviously trends don't change that quickly. But I also look at look at it from that perspective. Who's my potential buyer for that piece of equipment? Yeah. So I think that's something else I look at. And obviously, you have people that are loyal to brands, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, because you know, brand loyalty in many families is a heritage. You know, right. this firm's only had green or this firm's only had red. So, you know, that's something else that I look at, Casey, as well, because, you know, even in our area, I can take you to certain areas where red's more predominant than green, green's more predominant than red. So I look at that as well. One of the other things that that I'm also going to be interested to watch over time is, and I'm going to you know, use green as pick deer as an example here, but in looking at pre-def tractors versus def tractors, how is that value? If you draw the line at the pre-def versus the def, how am I seeing that trend separate? What's that pre-def tractor, that 12 or 13 model with X hours versus that 14 model? 
that's the same model, but it has X hours. Am I seeing a widening in that gap of the first year of the deaf versus the last year of the non-deaf? That's something else that I do take into consideration when I'm looking at it as well. Yeah, so trend lines are thing that I, I really am concerned about from a perspective of, I think this is the first time in an uptick where we don't see, we see, we don't see a, a growth in farm. Um, the number of farmers see a decrease in the number of farms. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is this is, talk about this generational crossroads and all these different things all the time. There's a, like I said, there's guys that, that were thinking about retiring in, in 2014 or something like that. And when kind of right at the tail end and like, no, what, we're going to hold on. We're going to ride this out a couple more years and things are going to bounce back. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't happen. Right. So now they're kind of doing their, doing their thing or they're right at the age of retirement kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But now they're at retirement age and they're going to, I think farm till, till it doesn't, it's not fun anymore. And then they're going to, going to retire i think this next three-year period the number of uh, farms are going to decrease and obviously the, number, the size of farms are going to grow especially with the operations that have this next generation coming back into them what concerns me about that more than anything is that i can give an example of, of a farmer that i work with that there's probably seven or eight farms that that he's rented or whatever because whoever retired and the bad thing about those guys when they retired, they were the ones buying his used equipment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So now we're going to start seeing that on a grander scale. And what does that look like? And I think from the U.S., Canada um, kind of uh, market and what that looks like, I really feel like that first generation trade and that second generation trade will always have a home. We're always going to be able to find a place for those to go. Um, it's when you start getting past that second generation trade into that third, fourth, fifth, so on and so forth, that we're going to continue to have a problem. Mm-hmm. And typically, the way markets work, you don't have a, a, a real start drop off someplace where you have, you know, these are high premium, high premium prices. And all of a sudden, there's just this, you know, this drop off to this next thing down here. There's usually a, a pretty, you know, stagnant decline in pricing right and and what one segment's doing the other one's kind of bringing it down what's that type of thing and or bringing it up whatever might be going on I, that's my biggest concern and that's the one thing that i'm going to pay the closest attention to is what's happening with that that five to seven year old combine and that that you know eight to 12 year old tractor where are those things playing at in the market right now and, mm-hmm. and are they piling up or uh, you know what does that inventory issue look like? That's what I'm paying attention to the most of. Mm-hmm. And Casey, one of one of the things that I think the advancement in equipment is allowed to happen is, you know, when again I'll, I'll go back to the period of time when I was growing up. When if you go back to the early '80s, if you were a 1,500 acre farmer, you were a pretty good sized farmer. The, the reality of it is in many parts of the country today, you can easily farm a thousand fifteen hundred acres as part-time operation. Right. Now, what that does from an equipment perspective, <clears throat> it actually creates additional spending opportunities for the producer potentially to be able to move into that nicer piece of equipment just simply because in all likelihood they have some pretty good off-farm income. Their insurance is most likely paid from an off-farm job. So the farming operation can afford a little bit nicer piece of equipment than historically maybe what it could have. And I, I haven't seen a lot of governmental statistics 
on those type of operations where they are as far as a percentage of the total operations within the country. But I know locally, or maybe I should say regionally in this area, I can go to some areas where that's a pretty common occurrence where, you know, maybe they're living within 30 miles of a decent city where there's some good employment opportunity. And they're actually the ones picking up some of the land that when that person is retiring, it may not be that larger operation. But I think, Casey, there's there's going to be a place for those pieces of equipment like you're talking about in those type operations. I think that's going to help solidify that market a little bit. But I think your point's exactly right. There is a point of equipment in there that it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to find a home for. And if you go that 20-year-old piece of equipment or older, which, you know, I I also find it interesting, again, go back to the early 80s. If you were farming with a 30-year-old tractor in the early 80s, it was truly an antique. If you're farming today with a 30-year-old tractor, other than the technological upgrades, it's still a pretty modern piece of equipment for the most part. So I think that's another thing that's changed in farming. And I think it's reflected that, you know, if, if you look at a, you know, you look at a 1991 uh, 30-year-old tractor or maybe even a 25-year-old tractor, which you're going to go up a couple series when you go to that 25-year-old, those still have strong prices. In in some cases, the prices of those tractors today are at or above what they were when they were new. So I think that's another interesting component that's a good discussion point on equipment. But I think, Casey, the maybe the answer to the question is, I think there's some part-time operations that are going to absorb some of that equipment, obviously not all of it. But I think the other thing that may be positive from the dealer's perspective, that part-timer is probably going to be willing to maybe trade a little more frequently, especially in times of good commodity prices, because they're going to be looking for some opportunities to offset the revenue that they've generated with some expenses. And, you know, let's face it, I've never met a farmer yet, and I'm no different. Who doesn't like to trade equipment? It is a hobby of you guys. That's, that's a, one last topic, and then we'll, we'll shut it down. Uh, technology, it's it's ever-changing. It's it's growing every day, and, and more and more things are coming to the marketplace where it's getting more and more automated. We're flip of a switch away from having fully autonomous vehicles. I mean, we have it now with turn automation and all those kind of things that are out there. But mm-hmm. I guess as you take a look at that and you're having those conversations with your guys, mm-hmm. where does the technology piece come into play? comparatively to the price of that technology for example um you know let's say you go and start using like machine sync or uh scene spray or something like that where you're you're looking at a significant amount of 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 revenue that will go in in, into those machines how do you how are you managing that 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 return on investment conversation with your customers first of all i'm congratulating them for looking at it and considering the change because Change in that regard is not something to be fearful of. It's something to understand and use the right term, return on investment. The question that I would typically ask someone, and I found it interesting because I actually heard a customer of mine on an interview that I did talk about this very subject. And he called me a couple of days later. and He said, I want to talk to you face to face. And it was about this very thing because it was about how you utilize technology, obtain additional profitability. In my question to him, Casey was the same that, that I have for, ev- for everyone that looks at this. Show me how 
you feel this is going to generate a profit over and above the cost. Because what, what I want to understand is, are they looking at it as a piece of equipment to be purchased, or in this case, a piece of technology to be purchased? Or are they looking at it as a profit opportunity that's presenting itself? What I look for in an answer is how much, in the case of a sprayer, what what are you looking at potentially the value being because of not overspraying? What do you think it's going to do to your chemical costs? What do you think that it will do whenever you have discussions with your landlords about how you're using the technology on their field in order to keep from applying additional chemical that doesn't really need to be? You know, how do you see that translating into profitability? That's the type of questions that I want to ask and I want to hear from them Not that there's a perfect answer, because there isn't. All I'm looking for in the discussion is how they are considering the transaction. Because if it's about cost savings, it becomes a little more about their working capital position and their overall equity. If it's about profit opportunity, then there's a different discussion to be had. And what I'm finding for the most part, Casey, Producers are doing a good job today when they're looking at this technology and approaching it the right way. They're truly approaching it from what kind of money will this generate me from a profit perspective? And that's the exact thing as a lender that I'm looking to hear because it helps me understand how they are managing their operation differently, certainly than they were 15 years ago, 10 years ago. You know, when, when auto steer first came out, it was not really a profit discussion. It was completely a technology discussion. And that's completely changed today. Well, Alan, this has been a great conversation as usual. I really, I really enjoy it when you come on here. Alan, folks want to reach out to you and get more information about who you are, what you're doing, sure. those kind of things. Pick your brain about what's going on. What's the best place to do that? Office phone number is 800 876 2362. And they can also reach me by email at ahoskins at americanfarmmortgage.com. And welcome all calls. Uh, you know, I always enjoy Casey visiting with people. I never get off the phone with someone that I don't learn something from them. So I love having that problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have the same problem, man. So it's a, it's a good, good deal there. So this has been uh Alan Hoskins is the president, national director of American Farm Mortgage and Financial Services out of Louisville, Kentucky. All right. So, Alan, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, man. Casey, appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to be on. Right on. Thanks, Casey and Alan. We've got even more used equipment remarketing resources we're sending your way. In addition to this podcast, we're also tapping into Casey's expertise across all our informational channels. Find more from him in the print magazine, and on farm-equipment.com slash expert. You can keep up on the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com. For Casey and Alan, as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.